Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I am Special Correspondent Rebecca Picard, your host for this episode and for a Women in Diplomacy series on culinary diplomacy. In past episodes, I have spoken with practitioners about the academic and practical side of the more lower level culinary diplomacy aspects, but today's guest is at the opposite end. I am excited and honored to introduce my guest, Ambassador Ertherin Cousin. Ertherin has done incredible work as the executive director of World Food Program, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. agencies for food and agriculture, and the U.S. mission to the U.N. agencies in Rome. Now, she is a distinguished fellow with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, among other prestigious titles like champion of vulnerable people, anti-hunger warrior, and powerful woman. Welcome, Ambassador. Well, thank you very much. And today, as I speak to you, I sit in Stanford University, where I also serve as the Payne Distinguished Lecturer in the Institute on International Relations here at Stanford. As an ambassador, you are truly a diplomat by trade, but you work more in the field of food diplomacy rather than culinary diplomacy. And I see the difference as food diplomacy is more using food aid as a tool to reduce global hunger, whereas culinary diplomacy is more focused on using food in general as a tool to bring people together. Can you first tell the listeners a little bit about your professional journey before we dig deeper into culinary diplomacy in your life? And also, um, I want to know, did you always have an interest in food or was it something that developed along the way? Thank you very much for for giving me this opportunity to talk about culinary diplomacy and the and the issues of food related to diplomacy and food related to humanitarianism and, and development. You asked me how did I get into into this area? Um, it wasn't planned. I'll tell you that. I studied international law with Dean Rusk at the University of Georgia, came out of law school with the goal of of not working in the international field, but to serve as a community organizer and to address legal issues at the community level in the city of Chicago. But what became very clear to me very quickly was that the majority of people who were presenting to me with legal problems were actually suffering from more structural problems of poverty, poor education, homelessness, and inequality. And so I very quickly um, moved from what people think traditionally think about when they consider the practice of law to public policy, uh, social justice, organizing, political activity. And so much of my career has been on that track where electing good candidates to office to support the issues of vulnerable populations. Uh, In fact, I actually ran for office when I was 28 years old, unsuccessfully learned a lot of lessons and very quickly learned that I was much more interested in getting good people elected and, and helping draft the right policies and actually serving as the elected official. But through my career in working at every level of government from from state, local to to the federal level, where I served as the White House liaison at the State Department, I always had some interest, if not some vocational activity related to food. What does that mean? When working at the state and local level, my work in the area of food waste, uh, when at the State Department, I served as White House liaison and the the issues related to hunger 
and the the U.S. food assistance programs and how we used uh, U.S. food aid to support development activities in response to humanitarian crisis became very much a part of the work that I was performing. So it wasn't surprising that when I left government, I became the vice president of a retail food company and worked on issues like food deserts here in the United States and the provision of food to underserved communities around the, the, the country that we call home. And so when the opportunity came to support the U.S. government upon the election of Barack Obama and I was asked what was I interested in doing, I raised my hand to say I wanted to serve as U.S. Ambassador for Food and Agriculture. Having worked on these domestic issues and also having served in the retail food industry for a number of years and working on the issues of food desert and access to food while also traditional issues in food retailing of how to move customers through the door, it was I had the opportunity to then become the executive vice president, chief operating officer for America's Second Harvest, what is now Feeding America. And fortunately for me, from a operator's point of view, but unfortunately for the people who we served, that was during the period that Hurricane Katrina hit. And I was part of the leadership team here in this country in how do we address the food challenges of those who had been impacted by that devastating hurricane from Texas all the way over to Florida. So when Barack Obama became president of the United States, and I was asked what was I interested in doing, it was natural and and what an opportunity I saw to serve as U.S. ambassador, to take the skills that I had developed working on domestic food and security issues here in the United States to support the U.S. position related to internationally addressing the challenges around the world of, of access to food, availability of food and food consumption issues. Sitting in that chair gave me the the opportunity to raise my hand when the administration was putting forward a candidate to the Secretary General for the World Food Program as the executive director of the World Food Program. And when the president and Secretary Clinton decided that they would support me for that role and then the head of the U.N., Ban Ki-moon appointed me to that post. It was an amazing opportunity to serve for five years as the lead humanitarian addressing the challenges of hunger around the world, both from a how do we save lives, but also how do we change lives to ensure that people can feed themselves. That's the nutshell of a very unplanned career that has revolved around food. Wow, that's kind of the theme I feel like is, you know, your career is never really planned out based on what you study or what you get into initially. So I think you explained that perfectly for people who maybe have a dream about what they want to do, but want to just jump right into it. Sometimes there's a longer path to get there. Yes. 
So it sounds like, uh, based on everything that you said, your life's work has really been to reduce hunger. And food insecurity is a huge factor in creating instability, which creates conflict. And we know that increasing the availability of food can help mitigate conflict and contribute towards peace building. But in all of your work and travel, how have you seen the use of food and cuisine and even cooking as another tool for peace building? Well, I, I'm very interested in the concept of food diplomacy, because while that term may be relatively new, the idea of sitting down and breaking bread together to discuss other seemingly intractable problems has long historical roots across not just the U.S., but across the entire globe. And so it's, whether serving as U.S. ambassador or as executive director of the World Food Program, I I was often called upon to convene conversation, and that conversation, more likely than not, was held over a meal. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I previously spoke to a few women in Ohio who are working on the citizen to citizen level of culinary diplomacy. And in the first episode of the series, we talked about the different levels and you're working at the complete opposite end of the spectrum as an ambassador, which is, you know, one of the higher level forms, or we call it track one. It's more formal interactions between government officials, especially through things like you said, dinners, receptions, breaking bread. Can you give us a little insider info on like what ambassadorial entertaining and dining is like? Well, it depends upon whether you're talking large group or small group. When large groups, you're historically, traditionally a reception of some kind, where as the U.S. representative in an international setting, what you will find is that the food that is served is more often than not a, a cuisine that we would find very common here in the U.S. But other parts of the world who where the, the, their foods are quite different from ours, it is seen as traditional American food, whether it is whether it is beef uh, that is served in a way that allows for it to help you picture to say finger food that the, we would that is served by waiters or it is served on tables. But I say finger food and, and served by others because what you want to do is that food is not the subject of the conversation. It is the gathering of people that you want to ensure that you have the ability for those people to move around and to dialogue with one another because that is the reason for the coming together. And so the food that you would serve would be a traditional, would be traditional U.S. food, but food that is easily eaten as you walk and talk. On the other hand, when you are serving food that is in a, at, a, at a more formal table, the food that is served is an, and, and the table itself are sometimes of equal importance. What do I mean? How do you sit people? Where are people seated? You can tell the prominence of an individual by where they're seated in relation to the ambassador or the guest, the the um, primary guest of the of the dinner or the lunch that you are hosting. Oftentimes, uh, what I always did that was different from uh, some more traditional dinners is that because you will see dinners where 
you have a long table and you would have your guest of honor at one end, your ambassador at the other. And that doesn't is not very conducive to conversation. So often we would sit across the table from each other with the ambassador on one side of the table, the guest of honor on the other, and the uh, the seating uh, from the ambassador to the left and right with those other individuals that you needed as a part of that dialogue to fully benefit from the engagement that that dinner, that lunch provided. Now, then what do you serve? Often serve against, as the U.S. ambassador, serving food that was, that is easily identifiable as American. I can tell you, I had the Chinese ambassador at breakfast one day, and we were having a very difficult issue that we needed to come to agreement upon. So it was a very small breakfast, and what did I serve? I served what we would consider southern comfort food. I served grits and eggs and bacon. As perfect for, for negotiating. Right, perfect for negotiating. Also perfect to be as an icebreaker. Mm-hmm. For the discussion of the um, for the conversation, because these were foods that were completely foreign to them, but foods that I could say these mean a lot because you come together in a very congenial way as a family often to eat these foods, and so I'm serving these to you as my friend, as my colleague, in hopes that we can use this comfort food to support our dialogue. And that opened up the discussion in such a positive way that while it was, of course, still a very tough discussion, we did reach a compromise that allowed us to continue to move forward on the particular issue. And so having putting that kind of thought into the food, into the seating, is quite important to ensuring that the dialogue has value. So did you get to pick... Like when you do this, do you get to pick the cuisine that you're serving? Yes. Yes, you have you have chefs and and uh, yeah. staff that support it. You you are supported by a protocol officer that that assists you in offering suggestions of of different menu items as well. Oftentimes, historically, ambassadors were men, and the wives were much more involved in the selection of food with the protocol officer and the chef than the husband. The actual ambassador would have been. But today, you are finding, because the world is changing, that men are often as interested in the menu as their wives or their staffs, because they recognize the value of what they are serving to supporting the outcomes of the conversation. In your personal experience, how much have you tried to include a bit of the other person you're meeting's cuisine as kind of a nod of respect? You would say it's a nod of respect, but in fact, you'll never serve food as well as as the the guest you are serving. Exactly. Uh, for example, the Japanese ambassador would always bring a chef with him from Japan. 
if you go around the world, you will find that many uh, ambassadors, particularly where they have very particular cuisines from the country in which they are serving, will bring a chef with them. And for me as an American to attempt to serve Japanese food to a Japanese ambassador who this is his native food is almost an affront, unless I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I, I would, out of re- in fact, out of respect for my guest, I would not attempt to serve the the natural food of their the the cultural and and food from their countries. So it's really more of a showcase of you and your background in your country. Correct. That's correct. I want to switch gears a little bit. I know that obviously through your position, you lived in Rome. And I know from experience that Rome is a really interesting culinary city. And I wanted to know what was your favorite food there that maybe you feel speaks on behalf of the city? Oh, what's my favorite food? Oh, the food in Rome was fabulous. <laughs> All the rumors you hear about Italian food and how how good it is are true. And one of the reasons why food is so good is particularly because of how fresh food is and food how how in the sense that fruits and vegetables that are out of season in Italy are, for the most part, not served as part of the meal. They don't, they don't ship foods from long distances in order to meet the, the taste of their, um, their clients or their families. You, you eat it when it's in season, which means that you appreciate it more. And then I think very quickly about artichokes. Everyone gets excited when artichoke season um, begins because you know that you can have artichoke served Roman style, which is much more of a, what we would almost think of as a stewed in, in olive oil versus a, a artichoke that is, is fried. But either way, it is a taste that you wait for all year until artichoke season. And when it's over, I, 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 I can remember more than one experience where I would see artichokes on the menu and I would say, oh, you have artichokes. And they would look at me and say, no more. Uh, (laughs) How dare you even ask? Uh, All done. They're all done. And so having that particular vegetable and, and having it cooked in a way that was particularly Roman was was an experience that I will always remember. As compared to when you're in Tuscany and the foods are much heavier, so you'll have, and I, I had the best rabbit stew that I've had any place in the world in Tuscany with a rich tomato-based sauce that literally melted in your mouth with a wonderful glass of Sangiovese grape wine. So you see, as I sit here and talk to you now, I can almost taste. <laughs> well, I hope you can't hear flavors. my growling over this. Over this <laughs> and so, yes, food was very much a part of my experience in Rome. I got the opportunity in 2015 to go to the expo in Milan, and the motto that year was feeding the planet energy for life. Did you get a chance to go? About 10 times. 
Oh my! <laughs> I mean, you need you need at least that. Well, to I, I and I tell you why I attended so so often, and this was a a truly an example of culinary diplomacy and exactly. how food was used by each of the countries to showcase their culinary culture, their culinary brands. It was also an opportunity to use the outreach that this the expo provided to address the challenges of nutrition, of food waste, of increasing agricultural productivity to support a growing population, to ensure that we have food available and accessible to meet the needs of, of, of all people around the world. So with those goals in mind, I was called upon on a number of occasions to speak either on panels or to deliver plenary statement regarding different aspects of food security and nutrition. Did you get to try any of the food that was provided? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get a chance to uh, and, taste anything, but... In fact, I brought my grandson to Milan, and that was his spring break holiday that year was we spent three days, three, four days in Milan just visiting the expo and tasting foods from around the world. Anything that stands out in your memory? It was it was interesting because the foods that stand out in my memory are foods that were most attractive to my then seven-year-old grandson. And so he was drawn to Asian food with lots of noodles with all kinds of different flavors, as well as the Latin foods with different seasonings and spices that made them, as they say, kid-friendly. But I, I'm a bit biased that, uh, that much like any mom, any place in the world, what you serve, what you eat is, is often driven by what you know your child will consume. And so it was good for me to use this as a lesson for him that there are countries around the world that have fun, good food that's very different from what he would consume here in the United States. That's such a cool lesson. What a way to learn it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because if you start with food, then you begin to think if their food is something I like, those are people that I'm probably going to like. What a way to bring up our children to help them see that we are different, but there's a, a compelling or an attractiveness about the differences that we bring. I love that. I love that. I know that you're busy, and so I want to kind of wrap it up a little bit, but I've got a couple of questions sure. left as we wind down. The first is, what career advice would you give to young women interested in pursuing a career in food or culinary diplomacy? This is, a, is an evolving area of public diplomacy. I would suggest that if you are interested in the more gastro diplomacy, as it's being called now, that is much more like social community organizing and, and social organizing that to drive change. And the same tools that you would develop, those of communication and organization, but with an understanding of 
of how you could use food to support those activities are the same tools that you should develop, the same relationships you would develop, and the same opportunities that you would seek. On the other end of the culinary diplomacy scale, the areas around more traditional diplomatic activity, I would suggest the same thing that I would to any young person interested in diplomacy. First of all, as an American, learn languages. So many of us who live here in the United States speak no other language other than English. Imagine a meal where not only are you sharing food and sharing conversation, but you're able to share that in the language of those with whom you are meeting. And so languages become very important in helping reduce the differences that that could potentially separate us, that ensure that you're getting the full benefit of culinary diplomacy, of any diplomatic opportunity. But that, so that traditional route to the, the foreign service, through the foreign service, through traditional institutions like the State Department, USAID, and other institutions that allow for you to experience the relationships at the at the the more government to government, whether bilateral or multilateral, that are much more traditional diplomatic engagements. And then I can't ever stress enough to young people who visit me to develop communication skills, develop the skills of of organizing, leadership, team building that allow for project management, project development, project implementation to support outcomes, not outputs, but outcomes. And those skills can be developed in a number of different ways that will provide opportunities for you to seize the different potential activities that could become opportunities for you to use gastro diplomacy or what is more commonly thought about as public food diplomacy or public culinary diplomacy versus the more traditional culinary diplomacy. My last question is, what food symbolizes your identity and why? You know, I thought about this question and I appreciate you asking me. The food that comes to mind is beef stew. And you say, why in the world beef stew? (laughs) You know, beef stew is a comfort food. It's a food that I always think about because I'm from Chicago, where it's very cold. That was what my mother cooked on a cold winter's day for warmth and family togetherness. It reflects my gregarious nature because you never cook a big pot of beef stew to eat alone. It's always something you bring people together around. And so that ability to to symbolize that opportunity for us to come together around something that generates warmth and conversation and comfort is how I de- would define myself and what I've tried to do with my career and whatever tools I develop that will help us see each other more as partners to achieve goals than as adversaries who always need to win. Thank you so much for joining me today, Earthrin. You're welcome.
Thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is called Misty Moses, and it's by the artists Rodrigo y Gabriela. Use of that recording is graciously provided by RubyWorks Records in Dublin, Ireland. For more information and to download more music by Rodrigo y Gabriela, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org. Thank you.